So we want to be building medical grade, inclusive AI skin solutions that can empower a number of, of different industries, ranging from consumer skincare to telederm to aesthetics and cosmetic dermatology. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I sit down with Eleanor Jones, the founder and CEO of Skin Intelligence, and Dr. Menal Ketterpal, dermatologist, researcher at Duke Health, and scientific advisor at Skin Intelligence. We discuss the growth of the company during the pandemic, how AI will drive innovation in skincare, and how new technology must address equitable health outcomes. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Eleanor and Dr. Ketterpal, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having us, Sam. Thank you, Sam. I'd love to start by learning a bit about both of your backgrounds. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and also how you became interested in skincare? Eleanor, let's start with you. I'm an Atlanta native, went to school at UNC. I always had a little bit of a wanderlust, so I probably failed my parents, my desire to not stay home and see the world, which led me to a corporate career with Coca-Cola, where I spent 10 years working for Coke Asia. And my interest in skincare dates back to previous skin issues. So I have had a number of skin issues at different points in the past. So I had severe acne when I was a teenager, and then I had melasma after my pregnancy. So I'm very well aware of the linkage between skin health and overall well-being. And Dr. Ketterpal, tell us about yourself. Yes, well, thank you for this opportunity. So I'm a dermatologist and I specialize in skin cancers. And in about, uh, I want to say 2017, you know, there were some studies that showed a lot of promise around deep learning and artificial intelligence with diagnosis of skin cancer that just blew my mind away. And I got interested in this space and educated myself in it. And as I learned more about it, I was fortunate enough to have collaborations at Duke that allowed us to develop skin cancer detection models. I quickly realized how this technology can be used for so much more than just skin cancer diagnosis and dermatology since, you know, we're such a visual field. So it has the potential essentially to revolutionize consumer experience. And that's how I got very interested in um, skincare as well as deep learning and machine learning. And so how did you both meet since it sounded like your paths were just meant to collide with each other? So I chased Dr. Ketterpal. So in 2019, I met with, it was then the vice chair of dermatology at Emory, Dr. Chen, who then moved over and assumed the chair role at Duke, who then in turn introduced me to Dr. Ketterpal. And it was very clear from the first conversation that Dr. Ketterpal has a tremendous amount of intellectual horsepower, is uniquely knowledgeable and interested in how in the development of AI and how it will be transforming healthcare and also how healthcare will be changed by enabling technologies that will be moving it to virtualization and potentially with the addition of automation solutions. So she's very much a woman on the move in her own right. Thank you, Eleanor. That's so generous. When I met Eleanor in our first meeting, you know, we had met some other folks that were trying to explore the space and she just had this clear vision. And I felt we agreed on so many different levels as far as the potential for AI. And some of the work that she had already done was just so impressive. So our visions sort of were like a match made in heaven. I was so impressed with Eleanor's passion, you know, direction and purpose and sort of looked for that in a woman, you know, who's a founder and a CEO and was very happy to join her in her journey. And here we are. I love this story of how the vision, the business background, and then the medical expertise all come together. I mean, that really, you can see how that can take a great idea into reality, into a commercialization and success. 
So Eleanor, let's start talking about Skintelligent and the company you're building. What is the mission of what you're trying to do? Sure. The mission is we want to be the global leader in developing intelligent AI skin health solutions to power a number of sectors within skin health. So we want to be building medical grade, inclusive AI skin solutions that can then power a number of of different industries, ranging from consumer skincare to telederm to aesthetics and cosmetic dermatology. So that would range from a consumer experience to tools that doctors would use in their offices? Certainly. So our beachhead market is beauty and skincare because it's a non-regulated market. There's a little bit greater acceptance. There's already applications for for AI to kind of power a a beauty company and give some extra edge to an e-commerce site. And then I think that's going to be much more expansive. And we can talk through a little bit further on what that might look like if you fast forward five or 10 years. I'd love to. Let's do that. What does that look like? You know, how do you use that technology to, I guess, better diagnose or just find products? It sounds like you'd first start with consumer products, beauty products. The first kind of hill to tackle has been, you know, using AI to then give consumers information about their skin and offer interactive product recommendations. And that's now become a fairly well-established use case And there's a lot of interest in that field. Moving into other sectors, I think within a retail space in five years, we'll be walking down the aisles of Target, Walmart. There'll be kiosks with a camera that allows you to take your skin and then port you over to the most suited product recommendations within that space. You'll be doing it at Walgreens. It'll be all over the place. And then in the healthcare space, you know, what we're trying to do is is in no way to compete with dermatologists. We want to be working with dermatologists and where AI comes in and plays a well-performing role is to automate some of the tasks that may be rote, they may be difficult, they may be inefficient. And so I think we sort of see ourselves as a part of an omni-channel healthcare plan where we could potentially play triage, we can help to track skin longitudinally, we can do things that allow some of those interactions to coexist with highly skilled human derm interactions. So I love that thought of being able to buy better products when you're in a retail environment. You know, the thought of walking out of a store without the right colors on you or going into stores these days and touching makeup and putting that on your face. I mean, that does not seem COVID friendly for sure. So that seems to me to be such a wonderful experience, you know, really new experience. You mentioned telehealth before, being able to visit a physician remotely and actually have the technology help to diagnose you without really being seen in person. As Dr. Ketterpol mentioned, dermatology and skin health is very much a visual domain, which makes it uniquely suited to visual technologies such as computer vision and deep learning and in different kinds of image processing. So that is certainly a use case where you can look for AI in a clinic setting or in a virtual telederm setting that can give information that can then inform a physician, whether it's a derm or a primary care physician, about what might be happening, whether there's regression in the skin, et cetera. And as as you're starting to see different kinds of healthcare platforms moving to virtual or asynchronous communication, then, you know, this becomes an aid that can then be put into an electronic record, sent over to a physician, and that can be a data point that they can look at when making a diagnostic decision. Dr. Ketterpal, tell us about your role as a scientific advisor to the company. What are you specifically focused on when it comes to the technology or the experience? 
you know, initially when I met Eleanor, I was impressed with the way everything had been going. They had already developed models for, you know, certain uh, very important and common skin conditions like acne, but the sky's the limit. And we, you know, really wanted to figure out what other sort of off the shelf models can we create that would really make this a more inclusive process. So my role has really been, you know, to help annotate additional data sets, bring in sort of directional information as to where the gaps are in clinical care and to help sort of develop accurate and successful models for advancing dermatology, the practice of dermatology and the practice of skin care, both in the medical and the beauty settings. And when you think about the evolution of dermatology now with technology, you know, what has been most striking to you regarding the things we can do better now and how that can really help patient outcomes? You touched on it. I think that the virtuality of healthcare that is now an accepted norm is now light years ahead of what, where we were in 2020 before COVID. People are accepting being able to have a video visit with their physicians like it's you know not odd at all. One thing we have noticed in dermatology is that often the quality of video is not sufficient uh, for us to make diagnosis. And, and so, as Eleanor said, that really brings in lots of interesting use cases where you know someone like us or a company like us can help facilitate that interaction, whether it is with like an image quality tool, being able to detect if an image is sufficient for diagnosis at point of care, so as the patient is uploading or a consumer is uploading their image to make sure that it's not pixelated and the lighting is correct. So sort of a standardized way of taking a photograph, but also additionally, you know, allowing for deployment of what we call clinical decision tools, which are either computer vision or deep learning algorithms that can sort of decide, you know, what is the current status of this image, you know, whether you're being able to assess redness and coloration and being able to track that for the patient or the consumer and therefore allowing their physicians or even the patients themselves in the beauty settings make better decisions about products and treatments. So if you can get the quality of that video right and it's really precise enough, does using that technology, is it better than actually having human eyes kind of scan different things? That's a great question. You know, so we have a lot of difficulty standardizing photographs at times with clinical trials, which is a setting where precision and accuracy are very important, being able to tell if a product is actually making a difference. And I've always believed in that sort of transparency, even with, you know, beauty products. Eleanor mentioned that we ought to be able to take a photograph, you know, in a precise manner and then be able to take the same photograph in three months after use of a product and be able to tell a difference. But sometimes the differences are so subtle that the human eye is not able to compute. For example, it's challenging for a human eye to compute every fine line and wrinkle on the face, but a computer or a model could be trained to do so with very high precision and therefore making someone realize that, yes, you know, the fine lines are reduced by a factor of 20% with this new product that I started using, you know, other use cases along those lines. Well, I'm very happy to hear that the technology can actually pick up real differences and that people also cannot see my wrinkles developing over time. So good news on both fronts. would love to go back to you know, growing a business during COVID and just how things have been, Eleanor, for you as you've been trying to grow the business. Tell us about the experience you've had over the last two years and challenges that the pandemic might have exacerbated. Well, COVID has made things easier and harder. And I think 
we all professionally probably feel some degree of that has been true no matter your respective of the role that you're in and the organization you're coming from. Where it's been easier is that COVID has really been a, a proof point that virtualization of medicine is not only possible, but is certainly an essential, plays an essential role in the future and that we will probably be moving into some sort of a, a hybrid environment. The other side of that has been, you know, the inability to meet live, have conferences and so forth has made that sort of catalyst in terms of making connections and understanding where things are going that allow you to prognosticate or pick up business development introductions. That's all been a little bit more stilted and difficult, but hopefully we have eyes on 2022 to be a much more normalized year. So last fall, Skintelligent was selected by Techstars in partnership with J.P. Morgan and Women on the Move for the first Founder Catalyst program. And this was a program that was really helping women-founded startups in the greater Atlanta area grow their business, help with their pitches, create contacts and connections. So congratulations, first of all, on being selected for the program and going through it. It was just a pleasure to get to know you and the business more as a result of that. Thank you. It's a great program. Tell us about your experience with the program. How has that impacted what you do with the company, whether it's fundraising or doing anything else operationally? The thrust behind the program is that one of the gaps that female entrepreneurs have in this underrepresented environment is that there is an access, there's a need for access to curriculum, to mentorship, and then in some cases, capital introductions as well to power the business. So the JP Morgan Techstars program is all about offering curriculum, masterclasses, introductions, mentorship, et cetera, and specific advisory that can help female founders to accelerate and grow their businesses faster. And I was incredibly impressed with the quality and the passion of the women that were in the program. And I have a pretty specific point of view that I think, you know, women are uniquely suited to entrepreneurship because of our ability to, to bring people with us. And also because of the natural humility that comes from it. I think if you have someone that comes from another sector, you know, women are very willing to get to the back of the line, do what's required, put themselves in their chair and execute until they start making things happen. So it was great to see that at scale with 20 other women. I really loved seeing everybody's stories and the mission behind the companies, what brought them to these companies. We really got to know a lot about them and looking at just the data that came out of it too, in terms of everyone's interactions with each other on Slack, you know, together, even in person several times. That's just been amazing. So we're really happy with this program and hope we can do this many more times. I'd love to also talk with both of you about what you're building and technology as an equalizer, especially in healthcare and especially for women. So Dr. Ketterpal, maybe we'll start with you. And this is something that's really important to me, to J.P. Morgan Chase. As a company, we have a division called Morgan Health, and it's really committed to ensuring all patients have access to the same care. So regardless of race or circumstance or where they're working, you know, we're really trying to drive this notion of equality through healthcare. How is this important to you? Can you talk about how you're pursuing health equity in your line of work? Yeah, thank you, Sam, for that question. I think that is so well-timed and really been diversity and inclusion has really been on the forefront of everyone's minds for the last year or so. And the work that J.P. Morgan Chase is doing is incredible. We need partners like that to really drive this movement of equality in healthcare because healthcare should be equal. And we've realized that in the space of development of AI in particular, the, a lot of our data that we use to train models is largely not equal. 
There is a dearth of images in, you know, with patients of skin of color, various ethnicities. And uh, this is where I have to give Eleanor a lot of the credit. Her experience with Caucasia and with her connections outside of the United States, she has been able to source an incredible amount of data where we are able to source images that we use to train a lot of the models in-house. And this equitability of data is really where what starts driving the process of equal care. You can imagine if you have a diagnostic tool that did not recognize conditions well in darker skin tones and was never tested would be very inequitable being able to only source patients that have a certain type of skin types. Even our skin ranking scales that we use called the Fitzpatrick scale is very heavy towards lighter skin types. We are also discussing technologies that are essentially being able to detect melanin and redness in the skin that can be used sort of as a balancer to make sure that we're truly looking at skin color in its varied form and developing technologies that would help all patients and consumers. So it sounds like the technology is certainly changing and what you're doing, Skintelligent and others are really making sure that new technologies are equally used and can provide equal outcomes. And it also sounded like there's non-technology ways of diagnostics that also should be changing. Is that right? You're absolutely correct. And this is where the passion that Eleanor and I have, where we share, you know, in this inclusive AI and being able to acquire and use data that's representative of our population and truly serves our population. So the data, of course, becomes really important to understanding trends and making sure people are reflected in medicine in general. Absolutely. What would consumers see ultimately? You know, if you have consumers with different skin shades, needs, issues, what will that consumer experience start to look like? How will that presumably get better for different folks? Well, I suspect that patients and consumers, in, and I use that differently because patients in healthcare settings and consumers in the beauty settings will ultimately require different models from our side on the back end. But overall, the customer facing side should be equal. They shouldn't know that there are different technologies at play in the background to make sure that it has been optimized to make sure that the models are accurate. We, we notice that in some of the acne models where the darker skin types, the model fails when you're not using it, not training it using data on all skin types. So we as researchers and dermatologists in the background need to realize that one size does not fit all. But the goal is that the computer vision and AI can distinguish that, hey, I'm dealing with a person with a lighter skin tone or a darker skin tone. I need to deploy a different model to be able to count the acne lesions in this person or have to deploy a different method. The journey will not vary for the user based on skin color, but in the background, we are making sure that we are making robust models that'll be widely applicable. And so the data is actually out there. We just need to make sure it gets into the right models the right way. Absolutely. And I urge my colleagues, you know, we need to stop publishing papers and just citing that as a limitation because AI out there that is not addressing a variety of skin tones is not representative of our population and has potential to cause harm even, I would say that. So all of us in the AI space need to make sure that we go after these data sets and do not accept a model that has not been appropriately trained. 
Are there unique skin conditions, issues, concerns that women of color tend to face? Absolutely. And this is where we need to ask departments or practices that focus on skin of color, get their perspective. They are incredible stakeholders in this and pushing the envelope for their consumers or patients. Our team, particularly Eleanor, has really driven that forward in learning more about what their pain points are and how can technology help the user journey or the patient journey here. I will let Eleanor perhaps elaborate on that a little since she's the driving force. Sure. So I'll be quite transparent on this front because this is a big core value of the company. So we didn't start out that way. We built our initial technology based on Asian skin, medium complexion. And then when that was complete, we tested it across the boards and we realized how underperforming our AI was on specific skin types and skin tones specifically Fitzpatrick 6. And so as a founder, you have the choice to run from that. You can pretend it's not happening. You can sort of bury the reality in the numbers you choose not to disclose, or you can actually take that and you can elevate it as being a core value of the company. So that's something we decided to do. So we decided to say that inclusive AI is something that we stand for, but we couldn't do it alone. So we've sought out a medical partnership with a historically black college that is, I can't talk about that yet, but that will be work that's materialized this year that we're very, very excited about. We feel that we have very strong partners that have incredible amount of clinical expertise. They understand what is needed to serve this population. And then we can come in with the data science chops and background with a shared vision from two very complementary types of capabilities. Tell me about that decision-making process when you started to see the data coming in that wasn't going to be reflective of everybody. How did you decide and quickly you needed to address that? Quite honestly, once we started testing and and some of these gaps came back, it was horrifying. This isn't the legacy that any of us wanted to build, but it was a byproduct of the data sets that you have. And this is you know very true in a lot of realms of AI in our case. So we decided, and I give Dr. Ketterpal a lot of credit. She's been very much marching on that mission. She's a very strong believer in inclusivity within healthcare, and that also affects the product that we want to build together. So I think it became an easy decision to be a focus area. It has not been an easy effort to materialize. (laughs) There's a lot of work and effort going behind it, but I think this is something that we don't want to have a legacy of building technology that is exclusionary in nature. We want it to be a leveler, an equalizer, something that potentially down the line could solve for gaps in medical training with respect to kind of specific skin types and specific populations. I think there's a huge amount of potential and we need to take the first steps of crawling before we walk, before we run, is what we're doing now. And on another form of inclusivity, can you talk about geographical inclusivity, how you see the company really trying to reach people who might not have access to doctors now? Is we know that there's a lot of health inequity in terms of geography, and there are healthcare deserts and flyover regions where they're very, very underserved medically. And That is where I think AI can play a key role in accessing and offering services to some of those underserved communities. So you can think about a teenager in rural Tennessee where there's no dermatologist in their county. They're dealing with severe acne. It might be quite troubling. They can't seek treatment. And so then the idea of having either a telederm solution or potentially AI to access them offers an access point and a service that was not previously available to them. And so while AI is inferior to a trained human dermatologist, it's certainly superior to having no sort of support. 
And so as Intelligent, we very much would like to have two chassis at the business. We want to have one that's a commercial chassis that is kind of a traditional business. And then we also want to find partnerships and partner with different kinds of healthcare providers where we're really targeting and offering our solutions at cost, at no cost, so that we could potentially be accessing an uninsured population that has deficits and lack of access to medical services. Dr. Ketterpal, how about you? Can you talk about that geographic inclusivity piece? And are you starting to see patients that are not in your geographic area? Certainly, we are seeing lots of access being expanded with telehealth and teledermatology in particular. We certainly can get more data points as well. So in other words, before, if someone lived six hours away, we might see them, let's say, twice a year because it was a challenge to take time off of work and travel. But now if we need to see that patient every two months, you know, it's easier, much easier with virtual care. So we can truly manage people based on their health conditions rather than their distance. So their distance doesn't really impact care anymore when we have a climate where telehealth and virtual care has become the norm. So we are very excited in terms of healthcare. We still have challenges with this equity though. There are boundaries of state lines and physician licensing across states would make that easier. And I think a lot of the rhetoric is going in that direction and advocacy. There's many bills currently to eliminate state lines so that, at least I'll speak from Duke's perspective, that patients in South Carolina could access care across state lines. From an inclusivity perspective, like Eleanor said, if we had models that could be a good support for someone in rural Tennessee or Virginia, it first enabled them to take a good image overcome the broadband challenges in their hometown, and also support them in the the first couple of steps of selecting over-the-counter products and then suggesting, well, you know, your condition perhaps could benefit from a dermatologist and then connect them to a dermatologist. You could really start to imagine how such tools can impact a user journey, equip them sort of with the knowledge and understanding of what they truly need, bringing it to the forefront of their tool set. With something just like skincare or cancer screening for skincare, do you see that as something that could be more broadly accessible to people? That is our hope. I mean, at least part of Duke, we are expanding virtual care. We are planning to expand throughout the triangle, hopefully by the end of this year. And my dream in the next five years is if you're a North Carolina resident, and this is only because of current laws, that if you have a lesion of concern, you should be able to get a diagnosis from any remote corner of North Carolina with the help of virtual care and the models that we're focusing on building. I love that. Thank you for sharing that vision. Eleanor, I'd love to hear from you. What's your vision, not only five years out, but even for 2022 to start? Five years out feels like it's, you know, a hundred years away, but I think in five years, you know, the maturity of the technology will have reached a point where the number of skin conditions, the ability to differentiate and tier between different levels of severity of that skin condition will allow for AI to be a point of triage. So I think where it works really well is if you have a patient or a consumer at home that's taking a picture They have the ability to track their own skin in some sort of DIY kind of consumer enabled way. They can track that over time. As a point of triage, you can submit a photo. The AI will read, understand if there's any problem, potentially problematic lesions on the face or very, very high severity of a skin condition that then warrants seeing a very highly skilled derm right away. 
other skin conditions that may be less severe can be can be routed to someone else that may be first available appointment or they can push it away to you know later date. So I think the AI in terms of being able to understand and inform booking timings, as well as in terms of what type of provider should be seeing that particular patient will be a use case that will be very much in play in five years. For 2022, we want to make progress on our core models. We're expanding and looking at new skin conditions. We're certainly evaluating things like, you know, atopic dermatitis. We're looking at sort of adjacent skin conditions outside of acne, pigmentation, and wrinkles that we're serving. And, and we're listening very carefully to industry on, on what should be the next battleground that we want to take from a technical roadmap perspective. And one last thing, Dr. Ketterpal, before you leave, I have to ask you, what are the skincare regimens that we should all be following right now? You know, Give us your best practices for how we should be taking care of ourselves. I will tell you that there are two things that I think we should all be doing. And uh, one thing, it may not come as a surprise, one of the biggest damaging agents to our skin is uh, sun exposure. So even though you know it causes skin cancer, it also leads to a lot of damage and mutations in the in healthy skin without leading to skin cancer. So if we want healthy looking skins that's able to combat all the elements, uh, sunscreens are an absolute must. We also recommend a healthier lifestyle would be reflected in the skin. So there are many skincare products out there, vitamin C serums, retinoids and retinols. Those are all great and there are, you know, various opinions on which ones folks should be using. Everyone's skin is very unique, but one thing that ties us all together is that you know sleeping right, eating right, exercising, and maintaining this healthy relationship with the skin will be reflected you know, in everyone, no matter what your skin type is, no matter what strength of retinol you can use, but using your sunscreen and maintaining a healthy lifestyle is really the key to sort of making sure your skin's aging at the right pathway and the right speed and not prematurely. Well, thank you for that help and support. And Eleanor, thank you for your insight and building a business that just sounds so fantastic and something that's really needed. I really appreciate you both being with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Eleanor and Dr. Ketterpal. It was so great to speak with two women who are committed to not only building a strong and successful business, but making an impact on the health equity of communities. I'm really excited to follow their success from a consumer perspective, and also to see how they work with physicians to use technology and improve patient access and care. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This podcast may contain general information about medical tests and treatments. The information is not advice and should not be treated as such. J.P. Morgan Chase is not responsible for views expressed other than our own.